0: Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca.
2: Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Weekend Review. All things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. This was Volunteer Week, an opportunity to celebrate people who dedicate their time to worthy causes and institutions. Today, I'll be joined by Lainey Towell from Volunteer Canada, as well as a Zoomer who was honoured by the City of Toronto as a Volunteer of the Year. Plus, as Canada's national conversation about the right to die continues, one journalist and author has taken a very thoughtful look at the subject. Sandra Martin will be here to talk about her new book, A good death, making the most of our final choices. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Wait times for surgery and medical treatments are costing Canadians big time. According to the Fraser Institute, waiting around for specialists and doctors costs $1.17 billion or more than $1,300 per person. That number balloons to more than $3 billion when you add in time spent waiting on weekends. The report also suggests the median wait time for patients to get from a specialist appointment to treatment is 9.8 weeks a time period that doctors say is three weeks longer than reasonable. It's something we've told you about many times here on the Zoomer Week in Review. Many people find meaning and purpose in their chosen profession and want to continue working well past the traditional age of retirement. Like this woman, 90-year-old Elena Griffing, who works at a San Francisco-area hospital. She celebrated her 70th year on the job this week and says she has no intention of retiring. In addition to her longevity, her colleagues say her stamina is remarkable. Over her career, Elena has taken only four sick days. A 93 year old man from Mumbai, India, had a meeting of a lifetime thanks to social media. Boman Koinur wanted to meet Prince William and Kate Middleton so much that he started a campaign with a video on Twitter with the hashtag WillKateMeetMe. It went viral after he called himself the Royals' number one fan. And it worked. Last week, koh met the royal couple in their suite in the Taj Mahal Palace. William and Kate then tweeted out a picture of the three of them together, saying they were very touched by his campaign. It's one of the most iconic songs of the Zoomer generation. But could it have been stolen from this song? Led Zeppelin's former lead singer Robert Plant and guitarist Jimmy Page will be in court to argue they did not steal the opening chords for their 1971 classic, Stairway to Heaven. A U.S. district judge in Los Angeles said the song and the 1967 instrumental Taurus by the band Spirit were similar enough for a jury to hear whether Page and Plant could be held liable for copyright infringement. They'll go to court... May 10th. I'm Libby Zneimer and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week marked National Volunteer Week. More than 13.3 million Canadians devoted 2 billion hours to the causes they believe in. That's the equivalent of more than a million full-time jobs. What's the best way to recognize these efforts? Lainey Towell of Volunteer Canada tells me a simple thank you is best
3: we um, asked organizations, how are you recognizing your volunteers? And what are the greatest barriers that you face to volunteer recognition? And many of them responded that, you know, they had more formal recognition practices in place. So as an example, um, it could be a banquet or, you know, an awards ceremony as an example. And many organizations stated that one of the barriers they faced was funding in order to actually... um, put on these activities. And it was interesting because volunteers are indicating that this is actually maybe not the most important uh, thing to them that regular recognition is. Volunteers indicated that uh, the way in which they most prefer to be recognized is a simple thank you for their efforts. It is also uh, important to volunteers that they hear about the
2: impact of their efforts. There are certain points in life where people are more likely to volunteer. Can you uh, describe that demographically?
3: Yeah, we do see a lot of the uh, baby boomers are volunteering, for sure. Um, And I think that that is uh, reasonable when people have more time than they'd like to to give back, for sure. Um, We also see that youth are very, very engaged as well.
2: Baby boomers have done everything in their lives uh, differently. So how do you cater to a baby boomer volunteer?
3: I think it's very important to understand that the volunteer opportunity is a good match. So taking the time to get to know those volunteers, understanding why they would like to volunteer, what are they looking for in the experience? Um, You know, did they want to try something new in life that they would never done before? Or is it that this person perhaps is now retired and uh, perhaps uh, worked in the legal field, for example, and would like to serve on a board, um, you know, and continue to offer their experience and skills and expertise? So I think that by really understanding what it is that an individual would like to get out of the volunteer position is very helpful in terms of matching them with the right opportunity.
2: A simple thank you may be best, but there were dozens if not hundreds of volunteer appreciation events this week, including one organized by the City of Toronto to honour volunteers at 10 city-run long-term care homes. Arthur Freeman is Volunteer of the Year for Comer Lodge in North York.
4: I've been volunteering there for roughly five and a half years. Um, I'm retired, so I lo- was looking for something to occupy my um, experience and business skills. And Camel Lodge is about uh, eight minutes away from where I live, which is most one of the biggest factors, plus factors in-, in volunteering there because I'm not fighting traffic. What I do there is I have been president of the Volunteer Association for the last five years. And I also run the tuck shop, which provides funds to uh, hire entertainers for the residents.
2: So what is your professional background?
4: Uh, Accounting my accounting skills in running a tuck shop successfully, knowing what products to keep, what products not to keep, the markup we should apply, um, what's competitive, um, um, staffing the tuck shop. uh, We we run it seven days a week, uh, morning shift and an afternoon shift. Um, I also sit on the advisory board, which uh, overlooks the running of the lodge overall.
2: Why do you find that appealing work?
4: Um, Because I can use my skills that I had uh, all my life, you know, business skills, accounting skills, people skills, uh, I I put them to use and I'm mixing with people. You know, I think when you retire, the biggest loss is you're not mixing with people. Mm -hmm. Um, So I am with people, I can't say all day, but I'm working with people, I'm working with the staff uh, of Camel Lodge, as well as the residents, as well as the volunteers.
2: Mm-hmm. And what is the most satisfying part of that?
4: Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, I don't know. Helping, seeing seeing that I am providing assistance to them, help and, and getting more money and seeing it's well spent, I think that's the most satisfying.
2: And how many hours a week do you spend oh. doing this? Um, I've just...
4: Passed my 2,000 hours award, I think last year. So I don't know. I'm spending maybe 20 hours a week, 15 to 20 hours a week. Let's say that.
2: Wow. So it's like a half-time job.
4: It's like a half-time job. Now I'm not always there at, uh, in the lodge. I do a lot of work at home as well. And also being eight minutes away, if I have to go in quickly, I can manage that.
2: Now, for you, you're getting an award. Is that the way in which? You would like to be recognized for it?
4: That they, that they can see that my services are uh, appreciated. The award is just partial, really, it, it is. I mean, to know that they appreciate me and what I do and what I bring to the table. Um, and, you know, more people know me by name now than, than I know them. So I walk through the lodge, and not residents, staff, greet me, say hello to me, they know my name.
2: And the fact that they know who you are is uh, satisfying?
4: It's satisfying, yeah. It means I'm doing something. I'm bringing something to the table.
2: And is this award that you're getting, is that important to you?
4: Yes, it is important. It's recognition. It's appreciation.
2: I've been speaking with Arthur Freeman, who was named one of ten Volunteers of the Year by the City of Toronto. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. We all want a good life, but what about a good death? That's sometimes a very different story. Author Sandra Martin will join me next.
0: You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca.
2: This week, the Liberal government introduced its long-awaited legislation on physician-assisted death. It takes a narrow approach to the issue. People with progressive degenerative conditions like dementia or debilitating psychiatric conditions won't be able to give advance consent to end their lives. Sandra Martin has been working on this issue for years, and her new book, A Good Death, Making the Most of Our Final Choices, is just out this week. Sandra dropped by our Liberty Village studios.
5: I think we all like to think that we're going to fall asleep one night and not wake up again in the morning. But in fact, the reality is most of us die in hospital, and most of us die you know, connected to machines and so on and so forth. And we haven't really talked enough about it. I say that it's like the Victorian attitude to sex. We know it happens, but we don't want to talk about it. And I think we do need to talk about it. I think we need to say, what are our hopes? What are our fears? What is it we want? And to me, dying is part of living. And so it is something that we need to explore and something we need to prepare for. But we
2: have been talking about it as a society, a lot, certainly the last couple of years. There's also been a lot of talk. I personally have covered a lot on the question of palliative care. Most people do not have access to good palliative care. And uh, that's why they end up dying hooked up to machines in hospital.
5: There is certainly not enough palliative care. And I think that palliative care is part of physician-assisted dying. I think that what people want is to have choices, and with choices come responsibilities. Um, not every, palliative care does not work for everybody. Not everybody has access to it. Not everybody wants it. Sometimes people who are suffering, say somebody with a terrible disease like Huntington's or ALS, they don't want to wait until they are totally uh, immobilized, perhaps unable to take care of their bodily functions, swallowing. For some people, you know, they, they're, they're drowning in their own phlegm. They don't want to wait until they're terminal and then they have access to palliative care. They want to make a decision that I've had enough, I've been suffering Um, I want to ask my doctor's permission if he or she will help me die. But to me, it's a continuum of which palliative care is one part, and it's part of physician-assisted dying, because you need a doctor's help to have palliative care as well.
2: What about people with dementia? That was in the parliamentary recommendations. That will not be in the legislation, and that's much more controversial. Uh, so, what about people with dementia? How do they and their families
5: uh, achieve a good death? As you say, the Parliamentary Committee recommended that if somebody is given a diagnosis of dementia or some other disease, like, I don't know, Huntington's, for example, um, while they are still competent, if they make out an advance directive after diagnosis in which they say once I reach a certain stage. Now, whatever that stage is will have to be agreed upon where, say, I no longer can recognize my family or I can no longer speak or I can no longer tend to my bodily functions. I don't want to live any longer. That's what the Parliamentary Committee recommended. So what can people do? One of the things um, we need to do is... As I said before, we need to talk about what we're going to do. I think some people, if there isn't a way out, that they may end up going to Switzerland. That's what people have been doing for years. You have to have enough money to go. You have to be able to go. You have to be physically able yeah. to go. And that you know, that means dying before you need to die. And that was one of the arguments that was successful in the Carter Challenge, that people who are not able to have a physician's help in dying – They are actually shortening their lives because they have to die while they're still capable of doing it on their own. And that was an argument that was persuasive at the Supreme Court. We need to have a strategy about seniors. We need to have a dementia strategy. I mean, I know somebody that I wrote about in in the Globe and Mail and again in the book, a man who I came to – I loved his family – I I couldn't really know him because he was in such a fog of Alzheimer's. Are you talking about Grant Crosby? Grant Crosby. Well, he used to work at the Globe and Mail, and of course um,
2: my husband did, and we met him socially when he was, you know, in his prime and vigorous.
5: He has since died, um, and he didn't have a good death. And the reason he didn't have a good death was because he was in a long-term care home, and there wasn't enough medical care at the home to give him adequate palliative care. So that is another problem. Wow, I, I didn't even know that he had died. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's. I mean, it took him a week to die, and it, it was just very sad. Is there any common thread that you found from the
2: people that you actually went through the process with?
5: Um I did interview a few people. I mean there was one person who I remember so well, and I think you talked to their her family too, and that was Kim Teske Yes, she had huntington's disease. There were three of her she, had, she had, there are six children in that family, and three of them had the carried the gene and she had seen her older brother become institutionalized um, unable to speak clearly, unable to move you know in a wheelchair, and she did not want that and so she try. She investigated how she could end her life before she was institutionalized. She didn't want to go to Switzerland. She couldn't afford to go to Switzerland. She didn't want to implicate her family in any kind of uh, quasi legal activity. So what she decided to do was go without food and drink until she died. And I was with her for part of that time. And I I just thought, oh my goodness. You're never going to be able to do this, Kim. This is too hard. This is too horrible. But in fact, she did do it. And one of the things I learned from that is how strong people are and how important their families are. Her family was there with her the whole time, and they became stronger as a family because they were supporting her. When they realized that the life for the person who is suffering has become intolerable and that the greatest love they can give that person is to say, I'm going to let you die. And I think that's very hard, but it's also an extreme act of love. Okay. Sandra Martin, thanks so much. Thank you.
2: A Good Death is published by Patrick Crean Editions, an imprint of HarperCollins. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. The Reverend Al Green celebrated his 70th birthday this week. We'll hear his biggest hit right
0: after the break. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support Carp with your membership today. Visit carp.ca.
2: Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, All Things Zoomer Worldwide. I'm Libby Sneimer. It's time for your International Art State Book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. This weekend, the New York Philharmonic performs Mahler's
1: Symphony No. 9. The Philharmonic is on stage at the Lincoln Center. In Washington, D.C., a new exhibition explores major events and movements in American art, with 150 prints from the colonial era to the present now on display at the National Gallery of Art until July. In London, the first revival of Showboat in nearly 20 years is winning rave reviews in the West End. Showboat is on stage at the New London Theatre. And in Australia, stop by the National Gallery of Victoria, which has welcomed the 300,000th visitor to the Andy Warhol Way Way exhibition, making it the most popular event in the
2: history of that gallery. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This week, the legendary soul and gospel singer Al Green celebrated his 70th birthday. Green was born in Arkansas to a family of sharecroppers. He grew up singing gospel music with his brothers. However, when Al was a teenager, his religiously devout father caught him listening to Jackie Wilson albums and kicked him out of the house. In high school, Al formed a vocal group called Al Green and the Creations. They released a number of singles— the first steps towards the stellar music career Al Green would go on to have. His many hits include Take Me to the River, Tired of Being Alone, I'm Still in Love With You, Love and Happiness, and his signature song Let's Stay Together. I'm so in love with you
4: Whatever you want to do Is all
2: was Al Green with Let's Stay Together. Green celebrated his 70th birthday this week. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Bob Comsec will be in the chair for the next couple of weeks. Be sure to come back to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide.
0: You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer Moses Zneimer. Produced by Paul Thomas.